Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. A team of psychologists took about 100 students and divided them into various groups and had some of them listening to an audio book before bedtime. Uh, 30 of them were listening to classical music, relaxing classical music, I must say, because it's, you know, uh, you need it relaxing if you try to go to sleep. And another 30 of them weren't doing anything. They were just having their stressful time and trying to get to sleep. But they found within three weeks, 90% of the young people involved became good sleepers just by listening to 45 minutes of classical music as they were going to bed, or as they were tucked up in bed. So you can make yourself a playlist. If you've got anybody else in your friend group or family who's having trouble sleeping, make a playlist of relaxing classical music, and buy these things as well, and play about 40 minutes as you go to bed. And within three weeks, you'll start sleeping better with a much better rhythm, and that will make your stress levels drop, and therefore your depression level will also drop. And this really does happen. So it's really worth trying it, because what's happening is the and you can, you can measure the, these chemicals in your bloodstream and the cl- relaxing classical music or relaxing music of any sort really uh, the classical music is rather reliable because it doesn't have any bumps in it but relaxing music lowers the level of neuroadrenaline in your bloodstream and that will make you drop off to sleep easier and stay asleep for longer If I were not a physicist I would probably be a musician I often think in music I live my daydreams in music I see my life in terms of music The words of theoretical physicist, writer and philosopher of science Albert Einstein. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. What does your taste in music say about your personality? Is there a link between music and intelligence? And can our bedtime listening lower stress levels, improve libido and reduce pain? Well, on tonight's show, we're going to tackle those questions with musicologist, physicist and author Dr John Powell, whose new book, Why We Love Music, has just been published by John Murray, where John writes, When we hear a piece of music, we use a large mental library of music we have already heard to give us some context and we unconsciously construct a new set of expectations. We predict that the tune will rise and fall, get louder or softer, and we are often right. John goes on to argue, it is much easier to distance yourself from a visual image than from a sound. So what's in a tune, and how does music push our emotional buttons? My name's John Powell. Uh, I am a musician, but I'm also a scientist, which is a very peculiar combination of um, interests. And uh, a few years ago, I wrote a book called uh, How Music Works, which explains the science behind music, because there's lots of science, engineering, ergonomics, and all sorts of other things behind actual the beauty of music. For example, we need to know where the holes in a flute go, otherwise you get the wrong notes. And the general reader doesn't really know anything about all this. And I read several books on it, and um, I thought it was fascinating, but the books are very complicated and written in a very dry style. So I wrote the whole thing up in chatty English, and wrote this book called How Music Works, and people liked it. In the book, I put my email, and people wrote to my email address and said, well, this science stuff is all very nice, but we'd like to know a bit more about the psychology of music. So I spent another four years reading um, all the psychology textbooks I can find, and they were much the same. They were written in a very dry style, but the, the content was really fascinating. So once again, I spent many years reading all about this stuff and then rewriting it into chatty English so that the general reader can hear all this stuff because the actual results of all these psychological experiments is really fascinating. 
things like uh, how music makes you spend more in restaurants and so on. And I thought it'd be interesting to put it all into uh, just conversational English with a few jokes thrown in. Really well done on the book, John. I have to say I really enjoyed it. And I love when you say about chatty English. I might throw you a big wide open question to kick things off. Um, and shall we see where we go with that? Do you think you can understand or at least get to know somebody through their taste in music? Yes, it does. And this isn't just mumbo jumbo. It's actually been analysed by teams of psychologists. By the 1990s, psychologists had decided that, that there were actually five basic personality traits that can be reliably measured. Uh, openness, which is also referred to as culture or, or intellect, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism, or emotional instability. And they've also added a sixth one recently, which is a, a combination of honesty and humility. So with these five or six measures, if you give yourself, or if somebody else gives you, uh, marks out of 10 out of the five different aspects of your personality, you can describe someone's personality repeatedly and uh, quite accurately. So the music psychologists have bonded various personality traits to various types of music. Before they could do that, they had to divide music into five basic genres, which they came up with um, reflective and complex, which is stuff like classical, jazz, folk and blues, uh, intense and rebellious music, which is rock, alternative and heavy metal, uh, upbeat and conventional is, as you'd imagine, pop soundtracks uh, and country music, and uh, energetic and rhythmic music, which is rap, soul and electronic. So certain personalities prefer certain sorts of music. People who like reflective and complex music tend to score high on openness, which is the uh, culture or intellect thing. They're generally poor at sports, they're good with words, and often politically liberal. So you can go through all the various genres like this, and it's all very interesting. One very interesting thing to think about it is if you give a psychologist or even a friend uh, a list of your 10 favorite tracks, they can work out how old you are, because about four or five of them, a very high percentage of them, would have come from the ages when they were between 17 and 23, because that's an age range in which we're sort of solidifying our personalities. And part of that process is deciding what music we like. And we tend to fall in love with lots of music uh, in our mid to late teens and our early 20s. And I'm sure that people out there who are in their 50s and 60s all have a, a great deal of love for music they heard when they were about that age. So what does that scale say or what does your music taste say about, let's say, your appetite or political consciousness or um, drive, you know, all that type of stuff? It depends because you can have requirements at different levels of drive when you're in different moods, can't you? So we all have a fairly wide range of music we like and we all, you know, let's say you like country and western primarily. Then there'll be active and jolly country and western music that you'll listen to when you're working uh, or gardening or something and other stuff that you'll listen to in uh, the evening when you're trying to relax. So within each genre of music, there's a range of activities, if you like, or activity level, which you can use to concentrate your mind. But in fact, you have to be careful because music in general takes up some of your mental processing time. And if you want to work best, if you're doing anything intellectual, like trying to study for a test or writing something, then it's best to work in silence. Because uh, music, if you think about your brain as being like a computer, then music playing in the background is using up some of your computing power and making your brain work not so well. It only improves your performance if the alternative is something very noisy and distracting. So if you're a student working in a canteen, trying to get this essay finished before you have to hand it in in 10 minutes, which is the sort of thing I, I used to do, then music on headphones will actually cut out all the distracting noises and help you work. But if you're at home trying to re revise for something or studying for your 
theory test on driving or whatever else it happens to be, then you always do your best work when you're uh, working in silence because your brain's not distracted. And the most distracting music is the stuff with lyrics. So I'm afraid, students, if you're listening to this, that you have to turn off the songs and uh, it'll help you study harder and faster. Why do you think it is, John, that some people get unbelievably judgmental about music taste? Like you could be at some social function or on a date or whatever it is and you start talking about music and then things suddenly collapse. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a word we can, which is very often misused here, but we can use it quite easily here, and that's cool. Uh, now, everybody wants to be cool, but cool means different things to different people. Cool really just means acceptance by your peer group. And, of course, if you're out on a date, you want to be accepted by that particular member of your peer group. And if you share the same things and other people don't share them, it's important that if, you, if you're going to be cool, you and your friends have to share something which you consider to be cool, which isn't shared generally in the population. So if I suddenly, if I'm on a date and I suddenly say to somebody that I love the work of Leonard Cohen, say, and they do too, then we've formed an exclusive group, just me and her. Obviously, there are other fans of Leonard Cohen, but they don't happen to be in the restaurant at the time. And so that bonds you together with people. So you do feel attractive to people who have the same taste in whatever it might be. It might be blue scarves or a certain novelist or a certain food. But certainly music is one of those things that does bond people together because you have a sort of joint background. And it's also, it, it means that if you consider yourself cool, which most people do, then the other person is showing how cool they are by joining you. It's funny how you could be midway in conversation, though, and with somebody that you find unbelievably attractive, and suddenly they drop something about music. And uh, it's a killer, isn't it? <laughs> yes, the Barry Manilow effect. <laughs> yeah, the thing to do if, you, if you're out with somebody you fancy and the date's going okay, if they introduce some music you're not sure about, then um, you should start listening to it because you might uh, want to show how cool you are in the future. <laughs> so, you know, and the thing is that all music is lovable. Uh, you can love it all. Sibelius is, is no better than the Beatles, uh, which is no better than Eminem, which is no better than Taylor Swift. They're all things that individuals love, and if they love them, you can love them too if you approach it in the right way. And it's very simple. All you have to do is Get a CD in your car or a playlist, which is stuff, stuff that you're not actually used to. Let's say Bangra, for example, sort of European uh, Indian type uh, music with a, a high sort of disco drive to it. Then if you start playing a Bangra playlist or CD in your car for day after day, you'll start getting used to the whole genre. You'll be able to forecast what's happening next, as most of us can in a pop song, for example. We can always tell when a pop song is going to end. We can tell when the chorus is going to start. We know that there are millions of things that could happen which don't in a pop song. So we're used to the sort of landscape of a pop song. And that's one of the reasons we enjoy them, because we can forecast what's going to happen generally. Now, with an unfamiliar sort of music, you can't forecast what's going to happen. And that's why you feel uncomfortable with it. Yeah. But once you've listened to it for a few hours, these forecasts start working properly. And you start being less surprised by what's going on. And then you start enjoying it. And then you can eventually fall in love with it. Yeah. And you can increase your pleasure in life simply by listening to a new form of music for uh, just on certain occasions, you know, when you're in the car, for example, as I said. If you do this for um, a couple of weeks, then you have a new genre of music to enjoy. And it doesn't take away from the old genre, so all you're doing is doubling your pleasure. Do you think you could do that with death metal? Yes, I think you could do it with anything. <laughs> uh, I haven't done it with, with, with... I mean, heavy metal was uh, pretty good when I was um, very much younger, 
But the music that I loved when I was about 20 is something which is very unfashionable nowadays. It's called prog rock. And uh, it's just a genre which I loved. If I meet people who love it too, then uh, we bond faster than we do than we would do otherwise. Schoenberg described music as frozen architecture. Do you think he's got a point in that? It's, it's a very interesting way to look at music, isn't it? Yeah, there's lots of metaphors you can use for music, but really none of them actually explains it at all properly. I've got a bit, bit of a bone to pick with Schoenberg anyway because he has some peculiarly daft ideas about how people should enjoy music. He thought it was an intellectual process and that you could do it basically with a mathematical approach, which I don't think is right. Uh, Schoenberg in his own competition had laid down rules about what he should be doing which had nothing to do with the sound that was coming out of the instruments. So if you read the book, you'll see that I make a strong case that Schoenberg was working against people's emotional capacity. You know, you can't warm to it very easily if you can't remember any tunes or any harmonies. You write, our musical preferences are not created in a vacuum. Can you talk me through that? Uh, no, they're not. I mean, basically, as I said earlier, we, we have to get used to the, to the grammar of what's going on in, in any piece of music and... Most of your listeners will be very familiar with uh, Western pop music. So you don't, you don't form your, uh, your likes and dislikes in a vacuum in the same way as you don't do it with food. Mm. Anything that's unfamiliar is slightly threatening. And there's a very good reason for this, because, you know, back in the caveman days, uh, if you had something unfamiliar, it was probably going to be dangerous. So you didn't eat the unusual berries you had seen until somebody else had to see, to see whether they got poisoned. So there's no such thing as developing tastes or pleasure systems uh, in a vacuum. Basically, you do it in the context of what your friends and peer group do. Did you read Diana Deutsch's The Psychology of Music, did you? Yes, all 700 pages of it. <laughs> what did you make of it? It was brilliant. I mean, basically, Diana Deutsch didn't write it. She, she, was the, well, she wrote a few chapters. She was the editor of it, and she got all the world's experts in music psychology to write a chapter or two each. And the result is very, very interesting, but it basically formed the basics for my book because... That book is written in uh, academic language. Mm. They, they use lots of jargon. They, they never say anything enthusiastically because that's not what a professional psychologist is supposed to do. And so it's very difficult to get to the point of what they're saying because they might spend a cautious 4,000 words saying that, for example, people tend to spend more in restaurants if there's classical music playing. So what I would do is, is read a chapter or two of that and think, ah, that's the point of this. And then I just write down the basic point and I can take the risk of saying it and it being disproved in 15 years because I'm not a professional psychologist working in that field. I'm basically picking up all the information they've written and regurgitating it in a much more sort of digestible form. I loved uh, your research on lyrics and music and how different types of people respond to different types of lyrics and how they engage with it all. It's, it's also interesting, isn't it? Yeah, lyrics is a whole subject in its own, on its own, really, because you've got poetry involved yeah. there. But you don't really need a lot of content or poetry for people to get emotionally engaged mm-hmm. with lyrics. You can just have a singer singing baby, baby, baby over and over, and that's plenty and That's for people to get emotionally involved. And there are a wide range of lyrics from the incomprehensible. But if I go back to uh, my prog rock days, uh, one of my favorite bands was a band called Yes, 